Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we begin Dr. Newfeld's new Christmas series today called The Hope of the Ages, where we'll be discussing a number of biblical characters from different passages in the Bible. So right now, let's join Dr. Newfeld. After the crucifixion of Jesus and not yet having heard the news of his resurrection, two of his followers were going to a village named Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked, they talked. Their minds were swirling with the events of the crucifixion. They had hoped that Jesus was the long-expected Messiah, but now it seemed that their hopes had been dashed. And as they walked, they were discussing what these events meant and where it all left them. And then Jesus himself began walking beside them. They didn't recognize him because their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But Jesus engaged them in conversation. They tell him that they hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel, but now all hope was lost. In response, Jesus calls them foolish. Didn't you know that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Well, it would appear that they didn't know at all about that. And so Luke 24, 27 tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. You know, for many years, I often said that I had wished that I had been there to hear Jesus' exposition of the whole Bible. The words beginning with Moses means beginning with the writings of Moses. You know, in our words, that would mean beginning with the book of Genesis and then going right through to the end to the book of Malachi. He explained how he, Jesus, was the center of the scriptures and that his life was a fulfillment of all the scriptures taught. And as I've said, I would have dearly loved to have been there to hear that. But over the years, I've sought to understand what Jesus might have said. You know, at first, my major concentration were the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Jesus, and they are there, but there are large portions of scripture that contain no prophecies of Jesus at all. And so over the years, I've come to examine the scriptures, discovering how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was hoped for in the Old Testament. But then I also attempted to look at the heroes of the First Testament. You know, the interesting thing about the First Testament, great men and women, is that they're fairly presented. That's to say they're presented both in their great moments of faith as well as in their great moments of sin. They're both heroes and failures at the same time. And that's the great difference between them and Jesus. Jesus not only never sinned, but perfectly embodied all that we hope for. And so with that in mind, let me get to the point. In this Christmas season and during this time of the year, it's traditional to speak of Jesus' birth and the implications of that event. And as I've looked back over my years of preaching Christmas, I found that I've done a major study in Matthew and Luke's account of Christmas, I've examined the prophecies of the coming of Christ, including the great prophecies in Micah and Isaiah. I've also done surveys of all the biblical prophecies concerning the Messiah. And furthermore, I've also, over the years, looked at the great theological themes surrounding the incarnation. That is, you know, what does it mean for God to clothe himself in human flesh and enter fully into the human experience? But I also realized that I'd never done a series on the heroes of our Bible and seen how all that they hoped for were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, years ago, Matt Papa and Matt Boswell wrote a wonderful song entitled, Christ the True and Better Adam. 
They wanted to show that Christ is he that was longed for in Adam, in Isaac, in Moses, and in David. See, while these men were not the ideal, Christ became what they failed to become, or Christ was what they could only hope would one day come. Indeed, the coming of Jesus into the world is the hope of the world. I mean, think about it. Every leader that's ever lived has disappointed. They couldn't help but do so. They were fallen like the rest of mankind. Yes, they accomplished great things, but also they leave a certain trail of ruin in their wake. Many of them have left consequences that they wouldn't have anticipated. In our world today, people are hungry for leadership that does not disappoint. Of course, there are those who are simply disillusioned. They've seen leaders in every field of human endeavor. They've failed in some fashion. And in a way, the media and the web has given us more personal information than we've ever had before. And we're able to see in high def, if you will, people's imperfections and sins. And so we live with a perpetual state of disappointment. But Jesus came into a dark and ruined world and presented this world with something it had never seen since the fall of Adam. Light had come into the world. And so for the next two weeks, hear it back to the Bible. I want to showcase Jesus as the one who is the hope of all that was longed for in the First Testament and also the hope of the whole world. And so today, I want to start with Adam. Jesus, the fulfillment of what was lost by our first father. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man. That's not to negate that it was Eve who was tempted and that she succumbed, but the scripture also makes it clear in Genesis 3 verse 6, you can check that out, that Adam was standing beside her the entire time. And as her leader, he no doubt consented to her fall. And so according to Romans 5.17, that because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And furthermore, verse 18 says that the one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. Verse 19 says that by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so I want today to compare Adam to Jesus. So let's start with Adam. His creation, the making of the first human being, was indeed a marvelous thing. Genesis 2 verse 7 says that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in this way, Adam's creation means that he shares in the material of the physical world. He is of the earth with a human body made of earthly materials. And in that way, he is like the animals. But he also has a breath of God in him. God created him in his image. And so Adam is both physical and spiritual, both body and spirit. He's created to relate to his creator and to enjoy fellowship with him. Indeed, God entered into the garden every day, the cool of the day, and Adam enjoyed intimacy with his creator. Adam was also given a purpose. God called upon him to rule over the creation. And Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And of course, God has ultimate dominion over everything. But Adam, he has directly under God been given the right and ability to rule on behalf of God over all that God has made. He is created as a Lord of the earth. And furthermore, God put Adam in a garden called Eden, a garden of delight. Adam's to work it. He's to keep it. He's free to enjoy its fruit. And so not only is Adam created to rule, he's also created to know enjoyment and fulfillment and eventually love. Eve, the woman who shares also in the image of God, 
is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And of course, in all of that, there exists a test, an opportunity for Adam to grow fully into everything that God has intended for him. See, there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which Adam is forbidden from eating. And what's the tree? Well, I think the tree represents moral experience. By refusing to eat from that which is forbidden, Adam will learn what is righteous and what is evil. See, Adam is not only in the image of God. He's to learn the nature of God, and that God is to be desired, and that his righteous decrees are to be enjoyed and fostered and obeyed with delight. All was going well until the serpent entered into the garden. And in his wisdom, God allowed for Satan to enter into the garden in the form of a creature. Again, that shouldn't have been a threat. I mean, after all, Adam was already given the authority to rule over all the creation. And furthermore, Adam had already completed the task of naming the animals. And so we've got to assume he knew some of the properties of all of the creatures. And so the Lord of the creatures is approached by Satan, who's humbly reduced to a creature under Adam's authority. And of course, that's the beginning of the drama. The serpent begins with a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? It's a strange question. It seemed to make the one prohibition into a universal prohibition. But it introduced the first seed of doubt. Is God a killjoy? who would deny the lords of his creation the fullness of pleasure that might be theirs. But Eve answers, no, God said, there's only one tree we can't eat from. And then she adds, indeed, the restriction is so severe that we can't even touch it or we're going to die. Clearly, the serpent's question has played tricks in her mind. I mean, when was it that God said, don't even touch it? And perhaps she thinks that God's being more restrictive than necessary. And then the serpent makes a declaration, you won't die. God has deceived you. You're the lords of the creation. How are you to die? It's deceit. See, those words must have been shocking. Never had it occurred to Adam and Eve that God would lie to them. And yet here's the serpent who says, God is lying to you. And so the question that Adam must now deal with is very simple. It's black and white. Who's lying, God or the serpent? Well, that's still the question that Adam's children ask today. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent celebration video series. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His purpose for our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days. Share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. If we were to make a list of the greatest of all human leaders, we'd have to put Adam as the first in the list. His life decisions became the life decisions of every single person. And as we've seen, Adam is concerned with who to believe. But as he and Eve consider, the serpent's not done. 
Indeed, the serpent is about to play his most effective card. He says, look, not only is God a liar, but God also knows that the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. You won't have to rule the creation in obedience to the creator. You won't just be a Lord of nature. You'll become a Lord of heaven and earth. See, that's what Adam and Eve want. They want to be gods. They want to interact with the creator on equal ground. Why bend the knee to him when they can sit on a throne? And so they eat. And as Paul has said, sin entered into the world and Adam, the federal head of the human race, condemns his children and their children and all children to alienation from the creator God, along with sin and the consequent death that follows. 2,000 years ago in the city of Bethlehem, there was another miraculous birth. No, I haven't said yet that Adam's birth was miraculous, but it was. His creation came from the dust of the earth, but he was miraculously created nonetheless. But Jesus was also miraculously born. His mother was a virgin. She had never known a man. But at this point, the comparison between Adam and Jesus is more one of contrast than of similarity. Adam was born into incredible wealth, and Jesus was born into a poor family. Adam was given authority over all things, and Jesus was hunted by the mad King Herod, who was looking to kill him the minute he was born. Adam walked the earth as Lord of the earth, and Jesus was in his adulthood, said he had no place to lay his head. And yet Jesus was Lord of heaven and earth. In his presence, the lame walked and the deaf heard and the dead were raised and the good news was preached to the poor. Like Adam, Jesus demonstrated that he had come to rule the earth. But there's one striking similarity between Jesus and Adam. Jesus, because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, did not share in Adamic sin. And so at the outset, both Adam and Jesus were without sin. And both Adam and Jesus encountered the strong temptation of the evil one. Adam encountered him in a garden of pleasure and delight. And Jesus encountered him having fasted 40 days in the wilderness where there were no pleasures and no opportunity to freely eat. But in both cases, in the case of Adam and in the case of Jesus, there is a remarkable similarity. For when Satan comes to tempt Adam, he knows exactly what's at stake. It's not just Adam that Satan wants. He wants all his children as well. And so it was with Jesus. Satan did want to subvert Jesus, to be sure. But he also wanted to prevent Jesus from having a great company of children that did not belong to Satan. Both Adam and Jesus are the federal head of humanity. For Adam, it's all of humanity. And for Jesus, it's all of humanity whom the Father would elect as his own. And so like in the case of Adam, so much is at stake. Satan had come to claim his second great conquest. He begins, as with Adam, on a somewhat benign note. In Adam's case, it was simply a question, did God say? And in Jesus' case, it was a benign statement. If you're the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. Indeed, if you're the Son of God, turn this barren wilderness into the Garden of Eden and enjoy all that Adam had forsaken. And Jesus simply responds with the words of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And that's to say, what I do with my power as Son of God will be directed by my Father. I'll wait for his instructions and not to the dictates of my physical appetite. See, I think it's fair to say that this answer must have rattled Satan. Such a strong response. Adam had been intrigued with what Satan had said. Jesus, on the other hand, showed no interest in that proposition, none at all. He had come into this world to do the will of his father. He's calmly telling Satan he's not budging. 
As to the second temptation, you know, it's, it's hard to tell which is the second one. Matthew and Luke have three temptations, but in different order. Both agree on the order of the first temptation, but the second and the third are a different order in the two accounts. And I tend to think that Luke's account is the chronological order. Matthew in his gospel often signals us that he's not attempting to give us a strict chronological account of the life of Jesus. Rather, in Matthew, while giving us a true account of Jesus' life, Matthew tends to group the events of Jesus' life in a topical fashion, not in a linear fashion. So it seems likely to me that the second temptation is the one when, in which the devil took Jesus and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says, to you I'll give this authority and glory, for it's been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will. So please understand how similar this temptation is to the one Satan offered up to Adam. Adam, he said, I know you labor under the authority of God. You can shake that burden from your shoulders and you can be the Lord of the earth. All you need to do is defy God. And to Jesus, Satan offers something very similar, but in a far more dramatic fashion. If Jesus has been unwilling to yield in, you know, the small matter of turning stones into bread, it's of no avail to slowly ratchet up the pressure. Let's get to the main issue right now. And Satan will be partially right. He says, the nations are now mine. Adam foolishly believed my lie. He thought he was going to be the Lord of the earth, but he relinquished that authority to me. And says Satan to Jesus, I have some idea of what I'm dealing with here. If I'm going to win this war with God, and I will relinquish some of the authority in this earth to you in order to win. And so Jesus, if you want to be the Lord of this earth, I'm offering you the grandest deal that you could possibly get. But it will cost you but one thing. You'll have to worship me. At that point, everything will be yours. There's so much that Jesus could have said. He could have called Satan a liar. After all, if he deceived Adam, is he to be trusted now? That would have been a great question. Or, you know, he could have said, actually, by the time I'm done my mission, I'll have the kingdoms of this earth and you I'll assign to the lake of fire. But Jesus offers very little, but another quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And this time it comes from chapter 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that, says Jesus, is the main issue. I'll worship and serve only one. That's my final answer. But now you should think that Satan has played his final hand. I mean, after all, the matter's basically over. But in one last desperate attempt, he offers up one final temptation. Taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, he says, throw yourself down into the Kidron Valley below, and before you land, God, who is determined to save you, will send his angels to bear you up. And in this way, you'll demonstrate that you truly are the object of the Father's delight. You will show who you are. And I'll have to admit that I lost this temptation. But Jesus is having none of this. Again, he's in the book of Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 6, verse 16. Simply says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To act even in this fashion is to act out of the will of the Father. I will not do it, he says. Luke then simply says, the devil departed from him until an opportune time. And with that, Jesus entered his public ministry, not having fallen, but having withstood. And throughout his life, Jesus would withstand one temptation after another. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that all these temptations, he was without sin. The question we might ask is this, how severe did temptations become? 
Well, Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Loud cries, urgent requests, tears. At every point in time, he recognized the battle with sin, and he utterly prevailed in each and every moment. It's the most impressive life ever lived. It's hard for us to contemplate just how difficult this matter was for him. You know, for many of us, when temptation builds, finally giving into it, it feels like lancing a boil. The pressure's gone. You know, we may feel awful and ask for forgiveness, but giving into the temptation has provided this odd sense of relief. Jesus never did that, not once. And that brings us back to Romans 5. Verse 12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is Adam's leadership of the human race. We've all followed Adam. And then in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And when Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, he would submit even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then three days later, he would rise from the dead and give life to all who would reject Adam and cling to the second Adam, the new head of a human race. Adam began with promise, but ended in ruin. Jesus came to a ruined world and ended in paradise. Thank God for the new and better Adam. That's the Christmas story. Thanks so much, John. And you know, we often speak about becoming righteous based upon the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, but Romans 19 talks about by one man's obedience. What do we need to understand about obedience? Well, the obedience of Jesus is applied to our situation, that is to our lives. Um, his perfect record of obeying all the commands of God and acting in perfect obedience with the Father, never once erring throughout a lifetime, that perfect record is applied to the life of the believer. And so when we get to heaven, we will be rewarded on the basis of what Christ did, not on the basis of what we did. So that's the perfect righteous life that's applied to us. It's a beautiful truth. I love to think about it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. By the time you hear this, Christmas excitement has already begun to fill the air. Our Yuletide expectations are seeded by childhood memories, media hype, vendor advertising, and church traditions. We forecast Christmas with such heightened hopes that can often disappoint Christmas morning. Well, this month, Dr. John shares a new Christmas series called The Hope of the Ages, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of God's intent. Jesus, the fulfillment of our Christmas aspirations, the hope of the ages. It's a message that must be shared year-round, and your partnership makes that possible. Thanks for all you do, and please continue to stand with us as we strive toward our year-end goal of $490,000 by December 31st. Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca 
to make your gift today.